I'm Chelsea Sodaro, and you know, I still see myself as pretty new to the sport. I'm super curious and I want to learn from the best. And I am Eric Gilsonen. You know, everyone is a triathlete, they just don't know it yet. Who is your hero in the sport of triathlon? Finish line, whether you're the first finisher or the final finisher, is where all people come together. We're all out there together. That's what I live for. This, this is the Chelsea is and the Eric Chelsea Show. And Welcome back to the Chelsea and Eric Show, part of the Beyond Podcast Series. Eric here. So I've been having conversations lately with some of the legends of the sport of triathlon, people who pioneered the sport and created a platform for today's triathlon world. They're also people that I get to call friends. Friends like Dave McGilvery, an early proponent of triathlon and an Ironman back in 1980. And today I get to talk to another living legend, a mutual friend of Dave and mine, He started racing in the 70s. He did his first Ironman Hawaii in 1980 on the small island of Oahu, then five over on the big island. Ironman Hall of Fame and USA Hall of Fame member, and there's only a couple of them. Started Competitor Magazine, started the Challenge Athlete Foundation, started Competitor Radio, Bob Babbitt. Good morning, Bob. How are you, buddy? E.G., what do I owe you for that? That's uh, pretty unbelievable. I, what, 20, 100? What do I need? How many times have I introduced you at CAF events, at Muddy Buddies, at races? I'd, I'd say probably over 100 times. And it's been a pleasure every time. It means at least I'm old. Oh, we are both ancient. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs> Thanks, E. Always a pleasure to chat. Um, Cinco... To Bob, May 5th, uh, back a couple decades ago, uh, you were born. Uh, where were you born and uh, what was uh, growing up like? You know, I, I was born in Chicago mm-hmm. and pretty. It, it was pretty interesting background because my, my dad and his three brothers worked at Babbitt Auto Parts, mm-hmm. which was on Chicago, California Avenue in Chicago. My grandfather started the business. And really, in the store was open seven days a week. The only day the store was ever closed was my grandfather's funeral. And our, our upbringing was a little different because my grandfather owned the building we lived in on the north side of Chicago. My uncle Ozzie and his five kids lived downstairs. My Aunt Barbara and her three kids lived upstairs. My grandfather lived across the hall and the babysitter lived in the other apartment. So I didn't know anything but family. Family was it. And I I don't think I met anybody who was divorced until I was in college. And it just was such a weird concept of, you know, a family unit just stay together. I didn't know anything different. So growing up, I was, I was, uh, we moved uh, to the the suburbs and we moved to the suburbs. We met when I was nine and I was that kid who was never good at sports but I was a good organizer. Mm-hmm. I was a guy who would go to your house. And, and of course, this is before cell phones and things like that. But I go to your house and say, hey, Eric, we're, we're playing baseball in the street in 15 minutes. And the first thing you would say is, who else is playing? <laughs> I, like, oh, I got Paul and Norm and Jerry. And I didn't have any of those guys. But 
you know, I now you said, yeah, I'm coming. And then I'd go over to Paul's house and say, well, he's the first first question is who's coming. Eric's coming. Oh, OK, I'm in. Yeah. And nobody wants to be the first. And I learned that early on that people want to be part of something that other people are already part of. So we would play. I was a guy. I was a guy who organized all the games and we play ball. And it's you know, sort of that led to pretty much everything else I did from you know competitor to CAF to everything that followed. Oh, you're an organizer like Paul Revere and Jimmy Hoffa. Paul Revere, Jimmy exactly. Hoffa, and Bob Babbitt. That's a that's a triathlon relay right there. I'll tell you. Um, and uh, so you were an organizer like that. Um, growing up in the Chicago area, uh, Cubs, White Sox. Uh, what was that like as a kid? We would take the L down to see the Cubs. We were Cubs fans. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because you, you kids wouldn't do that now, but you're like 9, 10, 11 years old. You wouldn't think twice of getting on the L <laughs> and going down to Ripley Field and, and coming home on your own. You know, kids were pretty independent back then. We just – I, I, in fact, I don't remember ever seeing my parents at a baseball game, right? I'd ride my bike over and play Little League Baseball and go do my thing. And, and the key for me was we ate it. We always ate early. We ate at five for dinner and all the other kids ate at six. So the key was to get in the house and be done by 5.05 so I can get another 55 minutes of ball playing <laughs> in, right? Just get, it's like, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to miss anything. I want every game that we played, man, I was all in. It was uh, it was really a lot of fun. I loved just just being with the guys. I mean, one time we we got this freak. We we hadn't had any snow all winter, and all of a sudden, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and hearing this weird sound in the winter. It was raining, and we got up in the morning, and the street looked like a glazed donut. The street had frozen. Right, awesome. we were able to get our ice skates out and actually play hockey in the street. And it was it was like one of the coolest memories that I have from growing up is all my buddies were 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 skating in the street in front of our house that never never happened again, but it was you know and then towards the end of the game all of a sudden it started snowing, and once you had snow and you could build snow forts and it was it was growing up was awesome. Good times. What was that like as a teenager in the seventies in Chicago? You know, really, I didn't. I was so really until I went away to college in you know in sixty nine and went down to University of Illinois, and you'd see you know, people were protesting the Vietnam War, and you'd see jeeps with military personnel in there breaking up, you know, breaking up demonstrations. And but I was just so oblivious to everything that was happening. Uh, I was, you know. So in the fraternity house, right? Sure. I, was, I was part of fraternity life and loved being part of that and just, you know, had no idea what I was going to do in the future. All I knew is that I loved being part of this group. And then graduating college, uh, ended up uh, eventually moving to California to, to run a PE program in a private school called the Children's School. And that was, that was really important because I was 78 and I found, you know, I was sort of like, played recreational basketball, things like that before. Then I found running and found the run, the running movement. And then uh, my roommate, a uh, guy named Ned Overend, who would become go on to become world mountain bike champion. But the two of us met rock climbing down in Mexico. And we read about this thing called the Ironman in 1979 after Tom Warren had won the Ironman. And that, you know, that pretty much changed my life. So how did you and Ned meet as you were saying rock climbing? We were rock climbing. There was a we there was a group called the Bujum Institute. I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but we they took us down the Baja 
and learn the rock climb. I'd always had a fear of heights, so I thought that would be a cool thing and met Ned and we became, Ned was a mechanic at San Diego Suzuki and I was a PE teacher and we just became buds. We ended up getting a little a little apartment by the beach on Sigurd Court in Mission Beach, right in front of the Moving Shoes running store. And those guys had moved from Madison, Wisconsin, and they were, you know, one of the owners, Carl, was living in the store. Wow. I mean, none of us had any money. We were just, just trying to make ends meet. And, and then I remember when I realized that Ned was a freak of nature is we had a, it was a five mile run uh, that was right there in Mission Beach. And we both signed up for it and, you know, finished the run. I said, hey, you want to, you know, go back to the apartment? He goes like, no, no, I need to stay because I took second. I'm like, you did what? <laughs> you're, you're, you're actually good at this? I had no idea the guy was a great, a great runner. And then, uh, then we both, when we read about the Ironman, we, the next step was we had to track down this guy, Tom Warren who won the race and was the subject of this article. And the two of us, we had done Tommy's event called the Tug Swim Run Swim. And Tommy owned a tavern called Tug's Tavern in Pacific Beach. And the race that he put on was really one of the early multi-sport events. Sure. You swam around this crystal pier, you ran five miles on the beach, and then you swam around the pier again. But the key was when you, when you came towards what was the finish line, you didn't stop at the finish line because you ran another four blocks to Tugs, and the first 75 people to get there got breakfast. <laughs> if you finished 76th, you got nothing. So uh, what happened was I, we ran to Tugs, and we got our plate of runny eggs and our Tugs glass because we were top 75. And a guy who was taking photos at the races named Mike Plant took our photo. And Again, you can't go online and get photos back in 1979, 19, no. yeah, 1979. You had to find the guy. So I, I tracked down this Mike Plant guy, and he had an apartment. And I, remember, I just remember his girlfriend had these huge cockatoos that were screaming. And, you know, and so he made us a copy of this photo. And, that, and Mike Plant was telling me that he had this newspaper called the San Diego you know, Track Club News that would become the San Diego Running News. And so then Ned and I uh, tracked down Tom Warren and asked him, you know, sir, how do you get into this Ironman thing? What do you, how do you do it? How do you train for it? It sounds fun. <laughs> and he invited us over to his office. And, and we go down to the west side of the street where he told us he was uh, on the south side of Crystal Pier. And there's no offices there. There was a motorhome and there was a bike on the back. And it was running shoes tied around the side view mirror. Welcome to his office. And there was a paddleboard on top. So we, I sort of put my head in and he's like, Babbitt, welcome to my office. He had a phone booth behind him in front of a restaurant called T.D. Hayes. And he had a roll of dimes. And he would go to a pay phone and order chips for the bar for Tugs. Or he'd order beer or whatever. And then he'd go run down to Mission Beach and back. And he'd ride to Oceanside and paddle out in the ocean. And that's, that was his office. But he took us to this bar, T.D. Hayes. This is like 930 in the morning. And we were asking him, sir, how do you train for this thing? What type of bicycle do you need? All that type of stuff. And as Tommy's answering questions and he's drinking beer at 930 in the morning, he's making marks on his arm with a magic marker. And I'm like, 
Mr. Warren, sir, because again, he's our he's our mentor. He's going <laughs> to teach us how to do this Ironman thing. Mr. Warren, sir, can you explain what you're doing with the magic marker? Because, well, I've got a little bit of a drinking problem. Every time I have a beer and make a mark on my arm when I get to my sleeve, I go home. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so then he took <laughs> us to his house and his house was like 5,000 square feet. And I think it was one bedroom, but he had a sauna in the in his house with a bike in it. And he'd ride five hours a day in the sauna, which nowadays that's sort of what Lionel Sanders does. But yeah. back then you would have the guy certified and put away. It was, it was pretty crazy. So Ned and I went to the police auction. My bike was a $75 bike uh, that had been in a fire and the whole back end was burnt and had the fuzzy raccoon seat cover on it, the foam grips, my Radio Shack radio, which I still have, and bungee corded to the front so I can listen to tunes along the way. <laughs> then uh, uh, we, I didn't know, we went out and I had flat proof tires on there, hard rubber tires because I couldn't change a flat. And we'd go riding with other people and we started figuring out 112 miles. If we averaged 10 miles an hour, which seemed like pretty good at the time, we'd be out there 12 hours. And we're going, uh, this is going to, we better get lights and I better get pannier sleeping bag and tent because I think we're going to ride, swim 2.4, ride 56, camped out, and then ride back the next day and run the marathon. Sure. And we really had no idea what we were doing. So, you know, we get over. To, and we swam 120 length to the mile pool uh, in my condo. Somebody jumped in. It was like a tsunami. And then we get over to Oahu. And now there was the last year the event was on Oahu. The, because of the article in Sports Illustrated, the event had grown from, from 15 starters and 12 finishers to 108 of us. And, and it was Dave Scott and a bunch of Navy SEALs and Gordon Haller, who had won the event before. And Gordon Haller had a big beard like I did. And when we came off the plane in, in Oahu, people, the Navy SEAL guys who were doing a race thought I was Gordon Haller because we had a very similar look and I had the beard. <laughs> My bike comes rolling off with the Radio Shack radio monitor on the front <laughs> and 10 years on the back. And these guys come over and look at my bike like they're looking at Lance Armstrong's bike. They, they thought that I had won the Ironman on that bike. It was, it was, it was pretty wild. We, we seriously had no idea what we were doing. Oh, that's awesome. And your Radio Shack radio lasted longer than Radio Shack itself. Exactly. Piece of history. It still works. Unbelievable. You know, after a 70.3 in 02, you came up to me and said, Eric, after yesterday, people know you're an announcer now. And you saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And you gave me opportunities and jobs. And uh, I thank you for that. Talk about a gentleman you spoke of just moments ago that saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself. And he's not with us anymore. And he's a legend, but he was always someone I looked up to. Talk about Mike Plant and how he helped you get to where you're at this very day. Yeah, Mike was, well, like I said, he was a guy, he had a thing called sports shots where he was taking photos and he, you know, he'd send you those little thumbnail things yep. in the mail, yep. your little picture. And if you wanted the real size one, you'd, you'd blow it up. You know, you'd you'd uh, call him and order a photo or you'd get little toothpicks and make frames put all the little tiny pictures. I did dresser. though. I did both. So Mike was doing that. And then he, then he got, then he started this San Diego track club news and he was working at chart house as a waiter. And Mike was one of those guys who could work 24 hours a day. He just worked all the time. And when I came back from doing Ironman in 1980, based on the 108 idiots who did this race, 
I told Mike, Mike, this sport of triathlon, which he had seen, obviously he'd been there since the birth of the sport in San Diego. This sport is going to get huge. You know, it was 108 of us, man. This thing's going to get, this Ironman thing's going to be gigantic. So at that point, Mike and Mike uh, actually made me LA editor of his magazine. Also from working with Mike, um, you know, the woman who worked with me at the children's school where I was teaching, she ran the art program, Lois Schwartz. She wanted to leave teaching as well. And she came over to learn photography from Mike Plant. Mike taught her how to use a darkroom, taught her how to take photos, taught her how to develop film. Where did Mike get his background in photography? I think he was in Vietnam and I think he did some shooting there. I'm shooting at the camera there. And he just, Mike was always a very inquisitive guy. People don't realize what a great artist he was. Mm. He did all the drawings and running a triathlon news. He did, you know, he did these different caricatures for different articles I would write. And the thing was, I invited Mike to come cover when I was working in children's school. I created an event called Iron Kids. You know, I went down to Mexico and bought these incredible Hulk banks. And those are going to be the trophies for the kids to do this little triathlon. They would, they would run a mile and they would do an obstacle course. And then they would swim across the pool we had in the complex. Awesome. And I called Mike up and said, hey, Mike, you know, you've been covering all these events. Why don't you come cover my Iron Kids thing? And he goes, you know, I got a lot going on. Why don't you cover it? And I'm like, what? I've never written anything before. So I'll give it a try. So I, you know, I talked about the helicopter hovering over the kids and talked about this most dramatic day in, in, in endurance sports history. And Mike loved it. He says, you need to write more for me. And he said, do me a favor. Just whatever comes into your head, do that. So I was like, okay. So first thing I did was the old fart of the month. Nice. And basically Ron Smith and a lot of those older triathletes and I'd write their stories. Legend. And we would get, and remember, people can't respond to things through email at that mm-hmm. time. If you were mm-hmm. pissed or if you were happy, you wrote letters. So Mike all of a sudden is getting inundated with letters. One saying, some of them saying, this guy is the funniest person in the face of the earth. And others saying, this is so inappropriate. <laughs> this is unbelievable. The running wino was another one that, that didn't, uh, you know, the people either loved it. And the picture Mike took of me was in a garbage can with a wine bottle, right? <laughs> it, it, totally inappropriate, not politically correct in any way, shape or form. But Mike said something to me then that has stuck with me to this day. He said, Bob, keep doing what you're doing. I don't care if we get angry letters. Vanilla doesn't ever sell. What sells is when people respond. When people are passionate, they will respond either negatively or positively. If they don't respond at all, it means they don't give a crap. And that's vanilla. And I don't want that. I want you to, to be yourself. And I want you to keep driving content that drives response. So the Reverend Campagnola Minister of Triathlism. I mean, we had one where I made up the questions and made up the answers. One question was, you know, dear Rev, you know, I was thinking about getting one of these wetsuit things, but you know, they I, I don't know how to size it. It looks expensive. What do you suggest? You know, it's like confused in Carlsbad. Dear confused, what I would do is find somebody about your size that you see racing. And when they leave on their bike, just take their wetsuit home, (laughs) (laughs) which, as you can imagine, didn't go over very well with with a lot of people. But Mike loved all of it. And he gave me that freedom to just be Hunter S. Thompson and, and do whatever I wanted to do. And I, I never forgot those lessons that, that Mike taught me. Oh, that's great. And when Mike, uh, he split with Ed Oleda, who was the owner of the, the magazine of Running and Triathlon News, and then the magazine sold, 
thought to uh, a, a gentleman uh, from the East Coast bought it. And, and Lois and I were so excited because this guy had this beautiful palatial home in Rancho Santa Fe, a portion of Mercedes in the driveway. We're like, oh, my God, running a triathlon news is going to another level. And then we found out it was all sham. Ooh. The guy rented everything and everything was on lease. And he came in, collected the money that was owed to running triathlon news and disappeared. And we went from what we thought was the cat seat to the outhouse in about a minute and a half. Wow. We, we were out of a job and the business was gone. So at that point, and you'll know these magazines, California Bicyclists and Southwest Cycling were also free magazines in the state of California. And the two of us, uh, Lois and I, went to see both those publishers and said, if we did a magazine that combined running, triathlon, and cycling, I think it would be very popular. And both of them told me, we will never put a skinny runner on the cover of a magazine. Hmm. And this sport of triathlon's a fad, and it'll be gone in five years. And this is April of 1987. And we came back pretty distraught, not knowing what we were going to do. And friends, Ron Marola, Larry Weitz, and a few others gave us a check for $17,000 and said, go start your own magazine. Running a Triathlon News published its last issue in April of 87. And in June of 87, we launched Competitor Magazine. And we are under, you know, 10,000 pounds of bike racks in a guy's garage. Uh, we were paying $200 a month for 200 square feet. And our first print bill was 20. So we were 3,000 in the hole after mm -hmm. our first 17,000 was gone. And I was living on friends' floors for the first year and a half. And, you know, we didn't pay ourselves. It was, but we loved it. Every weekend, Lois and I would drive up to LA and cover events and cover events in San Diego. And we loved the personalities. We loved the people and the stories we could tell. And especially, and this is something that hit me early, uh, especially the stories of the challenged athletes. Mm -hmm. I met an athlete named Jim Knopp who was a, a former pole vaulter, uh, Olympic trials pole vaulter, who was hit by a car when he's on his motorcycle, sort of a pattern here. And um, Jim, we were going to do an article on Jimmy. He was wearing a Dalmatian skin suit. He was talking smack. I just won this race. Why are the runners getting the money? I was the first one across the line. He understood that to build that sport, he had to have a, you know, a black hat and a white hat to create rivalries that media would care about. And he had no problem wearing the black hat. So he invited me over to his house and I'm in his living room and there's a nickel on the floor. And I'm like, first thought, poor guy in a wheelchair can't pick up the nickel. I go to pick up the nickel, the nickel is glued to the floor. Mm. And Kanab's sitting to my right, drinking a beer going, so Babbitt, you didn't think the cripple could pick up a nickel off the floor? Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> and that was a lesson. It was a lesson of, don't underestimate anybody. And that was what Jimmy's mission was, is it, when you're in rehab, usually the doctors and the rehab guys are saying, you need to get a motorized ramp for your van. And here's all the stuff you can't do. And they'd be looking out the window and Jim Knob would drive up in a 63 Rambler convertible. And he'd reach behind him and take his chair and fling it out and jump into the chair and roll in and say, they told you what you can't do. I'm here to show you what you can do. That to me was those stories resonated more than some guy running a 30 minute 10K and saying, yeah, I ran fast. Those stories that Jim Knob and David Bailey and all these amazing athletes, you know, what they overcame to get to where they were was really meant a lot to me. And this is long before CAF.
And what's amazing is Mike Plant, you know, ended up in 1981, 82, 83, announcing Iron Man Hawaii with Artie Johnson, the, the voice of Laugh-In. Yes. Very interesting, you know. He had a house in Kona, and those two guys got together. And now it's uh, Riley and a few of us. And he also wrote the, he wrote the book Iron Will, which was really the first book to, to chronicle what Iron Man was all about. Absolutely. Where would we be without Mike Plant? God rest his soul. So you and Lois covered so many events and so many backstories. But yeah. talk about your favorite Iron Man races. Maybe just a couple of your top two or three Iron Man nuggets. Sure. Yeah, probably one, obviously, is the three-year uh, trilogy with Carlos Maleda and David Bailey. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about it, in 94 was the first year wheelchairs were allowed to participate in Ironman. Up until then, the mentality was, if we allow someone to use a hand cycle and a racing chair, then what if somebody has a problem swimming and they want to use a windsurfer? How do we cut, how do we create something that doesn't open up Pandora's box? And so it became, you know, swim, hand cycle, racing chair. And that became what, what uh, Dr. John Franks came over in 1994 to try to do all three. And he missed the cutoff time. And in 95 and 96, a guy named John McClain from Australia came over and missed the bike cutoff time. Now, remember, hand cycles back then were like 30 pounds. So it was they were pushing a lot of weight trying to get through. And, and in 96, when he, he finished the bike, but he missed the bike cutoff time, the race director, Sharon Eccles, I think it was Sharon Eccles, said, why don't you go off and do the run just so that we know that you can finish, the wheelchair person can finish this under the 17 hours. And we all knew that he would go, you know, two hours or so, which is, which is what he did. And um, he, they went to put a medal around John's neck. And John's brother said, no, 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 you can't have that. You didn't make the bike cutoff time. And, and there was discussion back then of, well, maybe we need to change cutoff times. And I was pretty adamant that, you know what, if we want a level playing field for hand cycle athletes, that means cutoff times. Mm-hmm. That means it's the same exact rules in terms of cutoff times as it is for the able-bodied athletes. 97, McLean finishes under all the cutoff times and gets to keep his medal. Nice. And then in 98 began this three-year battle between Carlos Maleda, who was a Navy SEAL who was shot in the back and paralyzed in Panama. They were trying to secure Noriega's plane. And he and his, his whole platoon was um, ambushed. And a number of guys were killed and Carlos was paralyzed from the waist down. David Bailey was a motocross star making 750K a year in the mid 80s. And he was trying to jump something. I think it was up in Fresno that in a workout that he probably shouldn't have been jumping. And he was paralyzed from the waist down. So the two of those guys come over in 98 and they went to Lubbock first. And in Lubbock, David Bailey crunched Malaya. So when they come to Kona, Bailey's assuming, hey, um, same thing's going to happen here. What he didn't know is Carlos went home and went to work mm. and really busted his ass to get in the best shape of his life. And he killed David in 98. And then same thing happened in 99. David got crunched again. And they come back again in 2000. And David, that whole buildup, he had pictures of Carlos Maleda around him. He was going for 150-mile hand cycle rides. And he's like, Bob, when I go for these really long rides, if if I have a, you know, if I have a problem, if I bonk out there, how do I get back? I, I don't, I, I can't get up and walk somewhere. I'm stuck. 
So his wife would find him passed out in the bathroom after these ridiculously long rides. And they come over to Kona. And I remember at the Carbo party, I went up to Carlos. I'm like, Carlos, I just have a gut. It's, this is going to be a different year. And he goes, you might think so, but it's going to be over early. I'm gonna, I'll crunch him on Pay and Save Hill and it'll be over. And that's exactly what happened. He took him out on Pay and Save and they're heading out to the turnaround. And then on the way back, David actually catches him. And then I'm coming on a lead drive, heading to the Kona Surf, which we used to be the transition. Yep. And David flats and Carlos ends up getting five minutes on him before getting to the turn to the T2. So David now is coming back through town in the marathon and he sees his wife and his mom on the side of the road, giving him the golf clap, right? Good try, honey. Carlos is kicking your butt again. And during the last few days leading up to Kona, David was out in his racing chair. It's you know, 100 degrees out. He's poised above the energy lab, looking down, going, I don't really want to add this four miles right now, but I need to know every crack, every pebble, because the races could come down to this four miles in natural energy lab. So by the time I got out to natural energy lab, David is two minutes down. They come out of the energy lab and they're even. And David is, is starting to pull away. And you can see the picture of him at that moment when they came out of the energy lab graces the wall of, of the CAF building about six feet wide, showing David in full, just in full flight, full extension, moving away from Carlos. So he gets to the finish. He's beaten Carlos. And I go up to him and I'm like, hey, you know, you want to get a massage? He goes, no, no, I need to wait for Carlos. Mm. Carlos comes in. When these guys race, they have these grimy black gloves, right? That are white gloves that are coated with, with, with from the tires. They're just all dirty. And they touch gloves and then they embrace. And I see David say something to Carlos. And as we're moving away, I said, Carlos, what did he say to you? And he goes, he said, thank you. <laughs> I said, what? He said, that's what I said. He said, thank you for pushing me to a level I never would have reached on my own. And why that's so important to me is that that goes beyond mm. disability. That goes beyond the wheelchair. It was two great athletes who wanted to win and kick the other guy's butt, period, end of story. It's the same as Mark and Dave. It's the same as Paula and Aaron. And to me, that's what was so important. It wasn't about the disability. It wasn't about the fact that, that both these guys were wheelchairs. It was two great athletes. One that kicked the other guy's ass, and they had three year, three races for the ages. And to see Carlos is getting inducted in, into the Ironman Hall of Fame this year, yep. it sort of brings all those stories full circle. Yeah, two men of character showing their character. Yeah, a pissed off Marine is a man you do not want to mess with. And David <laughs> Bailey, yeah, at the top of his game in motocross. And I got one, I got one other that. that Please, that, at least one or two more. Yeah, so 1981 was the first year that the Ironman had moved to uh, the big island. So during that week leading into the race, I met this kid named Robin Tane. He's a 14-year-old high school football player who one of the Navy SEALs, Bill McKeon, he had met, he knew uh, Robin's dad. He was his therapist. And it was back then, it was like, hey, why don't you come with us and do this race? Okay, cool. I mean, it's like you just send a check in for 25 bucks and you're it. So Robin was, there was no cutoff time for ages, anything like that. So 14-year-old Robin and Tane and I were working out throughout the week. And then on race day, you know, I think I was ahead of him out of the swim. And then I was ahead of him substantially after the bike. And then towards the, we were on the Queen Highway and here comes Robin. And we're running together. 
And I'm like, this is so cool. I get to run with Robin. But then you get to the point when you're on elite drive thinking, if I out sprint a 14 year old, I look like an idiot. <laughs> but if I get beat by a 14 year old, I look like an idiot. So it's not like either, either way I go, I lose. So we, as I'm thinking about this, he's decided that I don't need to be with this old loser anymore. And he just takes off and beats me by a couple hundred yards. And it was like, Thank you for that, Robin. But the cool part is, is Robin's mom and dad uh, made me like a little Iron Man. This is before they did Iron Man necklaces. They made an Iron Man necklace that I have around here somewhere that is it's a treasure for me because nice. it, it reminded me of a great, great relationship with the who ended up. And it was lucky he did it when he was 14. He ended up playing defensive back at Stanford. Wow. Right? He got, it was 6'2", 220. He got a little too big to do, do Iron Man. So at 14, he was the perfect size. But it was, you know, after that, it might have been after that year that they ended up changing the rule that you needed to be 18 to mm-hmm. do the Ironman. How about Jim McLaren? You know, let's go back a ways from Carlos and David and the wheelchairs, and but let's go back to 90, 91, 92, 93, and uh, Jim McLaren yeah. and what evolved after Jim. Well, what happened with Jimmy is Jimmy originally was a football player, offensive lineman at Yale. And in 1985, he was taking acting classes in New York, was on his motorcycle, got hit by a bus, thrown 90 feet in the air, dead on arrival, lived, ended up losing his leg below the knee. And he reinvented himself, became the Babe Ruth of amputee athletes. He ran a 316 marathon, went 1042 at Kona. And that's where I met him because I was covering him through Competitor Magazine. And at that point, Jimmy was sponsored by Bud Light, by, by Profile by Design. He was traveling the world. And he was the one-legged guy everybody knew. So eight years later, we're racing in Orange County in Mission Viejo, and a van goes through a closed intersection. It's the back of Jimmy's bike, propels him into a pole head first, and a guy who's already an amputee becomes a quadriplegic. And our whole sport was in mourning. It was just, how could it happen twice? How could this guy be injured twice? So Jeffrey Esikow, Rick Kozlowski, and our whole sport we rallied around Jimmy and the goal was, because I covered athletes like Jim Kanab and who had told me the worst part of getting injured was all of a sudden mom and dad come back in your life. You're 30 years old. You thought you're an independent adult. Now you can't get around. So that's what we wanted to do for Jimmy. We wanted to raise 25000 through a little triathlon and buy him a van with hand controls to give him independence. And we ended up raising forty nine and ready to buy him the van. And three amputee women who were, were on a relay team at that first ever San Diego Triathlon Challenge, they came up to us and said, it's great we did for Jimmy. He got us into endurance. But did you know if you get injured, your health insurance will cover a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair? Nothing to do with sport is covered because they consider sport a quote unquote luxury item, which you and I both know sport is a huge part of who we are and what we do. And it's, it saves lives. So that's when we got our 5013C and decided if someone needed a piece of equipment, training, or travel to stay in game of life through sport, that CF would be there forever and a day. And now it's, like I said, 27 years and 35,000 grants and $134 million raised. It's, uh, and all of that goes back to the legacy of Jim McLaren. 
And then we would hear about Ocean's uh, Orange County because they gave away a Mazda car and uh, right. Welchie won. And then we heard, but Jim McLaren got hit. No, no, no. He got hit years ago in New York in a motorcycle. No, no, no. Yeah. He got hit again. And that was just like before internet. So we were just getting word of mouth from our athlete friends down in LA. We just could not believe in the Bay Area that that had happened to Jim again. He led to the film Emmanuel's Gift, and that changed everything. Being at the Kodak Theater in L.A. and having Matthew Perry from Friends introduce Oprah, who introduces a video piece narrated by Kiefer Sutherland by on Jim McLaren and Emmanuel Fosu-Yeboah to win the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, and then having a standing ovation from LeBron James and Bill Walton and all these A-list athletes who realized that you know, who now had heard of CAF for the first time back in 2005, 2006. And weren't you uh, uh, invited to Oprah's uh, show in Chicago and you brought your parents one day? I did. That was actually pretty fun. Emmanuel and Jim on Oprah. I mean, it, was, it doesn't get any more mainstream back then. Yeah. What percentage of the Paralympians that are going to be competing in a few weeks uh, are, have gotten support from you guys? You know, it's so funny. The last Winter Games, we were 50% of the U.S. contingent had received grants from CAF. I'm guessing it's even higher. In fact, we were looking at the last Winter Games. I think CAF would have been third in the medal count, hmm. right, in terms of all the athletes we'd supported who'd won medals. Nice. And this time is, is going to be when we introduced the paratriathlon team a couple weeks ago for USA Triathlon. It's, you know, Eric McElvaney and Jamie Brown and so many of our athletes who have been with us forever and ever. And that's actually when you look at the at para swimming, um, when I was watching the para swimming uh, Paralympic trials, all these kids who have followed Rudy Garcia Tolson, Rudy's double above knee amputee. We've been working with him since he was seven. He's now going to his fifth Paralympic Games. He's finished the Ironman. He's won five Paralympic medals. And all these kids are uh, really a tribute to Rudy because they found out about swimming from coming to our swim clinics with Rudy that we've been putting out all over the country for the last 25 years. So in triathlon, we swim, bike, run, have fun, raise money for others. Um, how has the change, how has the sport changed in 40 years? You know, we've been around a while and we've watched it grow, but uh, tell us about some of the changes. What do you think? Where is it going? You know, obviously it, it's funny when I, as I've got my, you know, my Iron War bobblehead here. Yes. And I, I, I look at these guys every day. And the cool part is when you talk about how it changed, if you look at what Mark and Dave did in 89, they swam around 50 minutes, which is what the guys swim now. They ran 240, 241, which is faster and about the same. And 239 is the course record now. So it's not like they're killing it with the run. It's all been the technology on the bike. Because I think if you put Dave and Mark on the same bikes the guys are riding now, they're doing the same times, if not better. So you look at the technology, you look at the, maybe the training, you look at the power meters, the indoor work that they can do. But the bike has been obviously the, the biggest change from that perspective. In terms of that finish line experience, uh, and the, you know, we talk about how the sport has changed a lot with technology, it hasn't changed with the gut and the feel and the passion. When you stand at that finish line in Kona today, or if you were standing there in 1982 or 1983, the passion people feel of that, that life-altering experience when they come across that magical finish line, there, there's nothing like it. And it's from Bill Bell, who was you know, the, one of the later finishers and sometimes finished after the cutoff time, to Peter Reed saying it's the most magical moment 
in my life is coming across that finish line. And I see it in 5Ks and 10Ks. We forget. And whenever we sort of get jaded and we're worried about, gosh, uh, we got to get water to this aid station. We got to get this to that aid station. Somebody fell down. We better get them patched up. Go stand by the finish line. And you make your living doing this. And you see the tears yep. and you see the joy. Yep. That doesn't change. and That never gets old. And even people who are finishing their 10th or 15th Kona or their 20th 5K, it, it, that emotion. Because you think about the range of, of emotions you go through. The, phone, the uh, alarm rings and you're going, oh, crap. I can't believe I got to get up. Maybe, uh, maybe I shouldn't get up. Maybe I'm a little tired. Maybe, oh, my back hurts. You then, okay, I'll get up. And then you get in the car and you're like, oh my God, do I really want to be doing this? Why do I, I don't have to prove this to myself. I've done this a million times. Why am I doing this? And then right before the gun goes off, you're standing there going, oh God, maybe I'll just swim to the first buoy and turn around. Maybe and when I jump off the boat this year, people won't notice. I'll just say, I got a cramp and I'll get back on the boat. And then all of a sudden those endorphins kick in and you're, you're, you're swimming along going, hey, I'm halfway to the turnaround. Hey, I'm halfway, uh, I'm three quarters away, uh, I'm halfway home. Hey, and then you start taking those negative vibes in your head, shoving them away, and everything becomes a positive. I'm out of the water. I just have to do the bike and run. I'm 10 miles into a 100-mile bike ride. Of course, there's some lows and highs, but it's you go through that range of emotions in that span of one hour, six hours, 12 hours, whatever it happens to be, and it culminates with a finish line. And there's there, there's something magical. Yeah, it brings us all together. A finish line is a magical place to be, and you know it better than anybody because you get to you get to welcome people in who have been who have been dreaming about that moment maybe for most of their life, and now it's reality. Yeah, yeah Riley, we don't take it for granted. We're able to create memories that are remembered at family gatherings. Hey, remember when you crossed that finish line? Hey, remember that? It's just amazing how many people you have affected Bob. It's just amazing. I take you, I don't take you for granted, you know, but you're my buddy. You're everybody's buddy. And it's just amazing what you've done. Let's go through some rapid fire things. Favorite mantra or saying? Um, no legs, no limits. There you go. Favorite journey? Well, for me, on a daily basis, my favorite journey is going out to, my wife and I go out to beautiful Pine Valley and we go ride our bikes and there's not you know, five cars in four hours and it's real cycling. It's beautiful. And you see wildlife. It's that, that's my favorite thing. That's my favorite journey. I try to do that as many days during COVID every weekend for, you know, for a year we were out there. It's, it, that's my favorite journey. Awesome. Your favorite journey with your favorite person, the great Heidi, patron saint of all exactly. of us in triathlon. Love you, Heidi. Favorite sound. What's your favorite sound, Bob? You know, it's it's interesting because my favorite sound is, is a sound that you dread and a sound that you you embrace. And that's, you know, the starting horn or starting gun, because, you know, like that's from 2019. I did. I think I raced 30 times that year. Wow. And I love racing. And that's the sound that I look forward to every weekend. And we didn't have it for a long time. So having that sound back is important to me. Great. You've already given so many gifts to mankind, but if you could only give one gift to all mankind, what would it be, Bob? Just happiness. Just people need to be happier. I think we've gone through this dark cloud period, especially in this country, mm -hmm. where it never used to be an issue 
if somebody was a Republican, somebody was a Democrat, you know, you're, you can agree to disagree. I mean, I never, when we went to the White House with Emmanuel to meet President Bush, it never entered my mind, Republican, Democrat, is this, this was the President of the United States and, and he embraced what we were doing and we embraced what he was doing. It, I just think that people have gotten to the point where they, there's too much hate, there's too much anger. And people just need to, they need to go get a bike ride in. They need to go get a run in and just feel good about themselves so that they can feel happier in their everyday life. Yeah. Well, if you come out to a CAF event, that's the biggest thing on that Sunday in La Jolla, the week after Kona, and all the parents are happy because their kids are running around with other kids. And there's 50 or 60 kids running around, chuckling, having fun, carrying on. And the parents are so relieved. It's amazing what I see the parents get out of the children. And that's because of you, Bob. Um, who are the funniest people you've met in triathlon? You know, uh, one of my favorite, he's funny and he, he's just, Todd Jacobs was always one of my favorite guys to chat with because he is a walking, living, breathing sound light. <laughs> you know, he said to Bailey, you know, he says, listen, if you want to beat Carlos Maleta, You've got to send your checks to a real dark place and be ready because he's not going to crack. You have to beat him. And I like, that guy, I've got sound. Or he said this great line, 1990, when the weather was ridiculous in Kona. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the year before, Mark Allen went 20 minutes slower in 1990 than he did in 89. Tinley went 20 seconds slower, right? He said, most of us crack in the heat. Tinley and Dave can race in hell, wow. right? It, it just some of his sound bites are just spectacular. They make me laugh, but they also make me think. Todd Jacobs. Awesome. Last question. Hoka, what would be the one model that one style that you would wear for the rest of your life? Wow. You know what? Uh, the, the new one that I got recently with the plate in it. I don't even know what the name of it is. Yep. The Carbon X. Carbon X. Yeah. Oh my God. I love the Carbon X. Listen, when you guys first started with Hoka, and um, I, I've always said that so many of my friends, Paul Huddle, myself, so many others, really were not enjoying running. I mean, as you get older and your knees and your hips and things start to hurt, what Hoka has done is brought joy back to running. Wow. It's just the product itself, it makes you enjoy running again because it's it's got. I don't know what the heck is in there. It's got that magic foam that makes you feel like, oh, my God, I'm 25 again, and I'm springy, and I can run. It's passion. It's love. Passion brings back – because there, it's not fun to be able to go out and feel like, oh, my God, I'm running a 12-minute mile. This is miserable. But when you go out and you're wearing your hocus, you feel like a kid again. They just – they do. They make you feel like you've got not just springs on your feet, but they, they're just you. You. When I first saw a pair, I'm like, God, those look so heavy. And then I put it on. I like took them out of the box. I'm like, Oh my God, how could something that looks like it could be heavy be this light? And then putting something on that usually if you put on something light, it doesn't support you at all. And the great thing about Hoka's is you put them on, and besides the fact that they're really light, they're also incredibly supportive. Yep. I learned that when I ran my first a Catalina marathon in, in the Hocus. I was like, oh, my God, my legs at the finish felt so much better than it ever had before. And this is long before Carbon X. This was back in the 
bought Bondi or whatever the heck they were, but they're phenomenal. Great. Great answer, Bob, as always. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for what you've done from uh, early days in Chicago all the way through working with Lois and uh, all the people that you and Jeffrey and Cause have affected. Virginia Tinley at the lead over there at CAF, uh, you know, just spot on. What would the world be without you, Bob? I'll tell you, it would be a much worse place. You have affected all the people I personally know it's legendary. It really is. Uh, so thank you for what you've done and being my friend. I love you. E, thank you so much. I appreciate it. One single event can change a person's life. And when Bob Babbitt did the 1980 Ironman, it changed his life forever. And he thus has changed so many men and women's lives, like Carlos, like David Bailey, and it's a call to action. In 2021 and moving forward, do something awesome. Do something amazing. Set a lofty goal. We wanna see everyone across the finish line. From Babbitt to Mike Plant that came before him to those that will come after us. The effect on the sport that Bob makes. I hope you guys got that out of this little podcast we call Beyond. Swim, bike, run, have fun. We'll see you at the races. Thanks for listening. The Beyond Podcast Series is brought to you by Hoka and Ironman.